Truth Espresso, episode 240. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. <sighs> this is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Well, hello there, friends, family, foes, and lurkers alike. This is your host, Daniel Minnick, and my wife and I had quite the week this week and the weekend, a lot going on, and likely some stuff that can be fodder for even an episode of Truth Espresso. But nevertheless, we find ourselves again in another situation where we're on such a time crunch that we just didn't have time to work up some notes and put together an episode. And so what we're going to do for this episode is actually take two episodes for the price of one. Yes, I'm going to take two episodes from back in September of 2020. Oh, back in those good old days of virus hype. And these two episodes were where I interviewed Jamal Bandy, who is a member of the Christian podcast community. And we play his ads here on Truth Espresso sometimes, the Prescribed Truth Podcast. And so, I would encourage you to check out Jamal Bandy's Prescribed Truth Podcast after you listen to this episode of Truth Espresso, where I talk with Jamal about his experience with kind of a oneness modalist cult. One of those kind of charismatic cults that believe that Jesus is the Father incarnate and deny a personal distinction between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I think you'll enjoy that conversation, but you will also get the second episode in this episode where I talk with him about critical race theory. And so, without further ado, enjoy my talk with Jamal Bandy. Well, hello, this is Daniel Minnick, your host for Truth Espresso. Welcome to an exciting episode where I am excited about this opportunity. This is actually uh, the fourth guest appearance on Truth Espresso, and so I think we have uh, some good topics to talk about. And my guest for this episode of Truth Espresso is Jamal Bandy. Jamal Bandy is the host of the Prescribed Truth podcast, and he has a lot to say about current political and cultural issues. And he has a wonderful gospel testimony about how he came out of um, a Christian cult to the truth. And so, Jamal, welcome to Truth Espresso. Thank you, Dale. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, Jamal, would you like to just um, brief us a little bit about yourself and um, how you started your podcast, so some of your gospel testimony and what you do as far as ministry and your podcast? Sure. So, um, I'm a husband and a father, two boys, and um, man, the story about the cult um, is an interesting one. Um, you know, I, I grew up in church, you know, didn't know the, didn't know the truth of the gospel, those things, I um, I stopped going to church when I was young and found myself back in church. And unfortunately, it was uh, it turned out to be a cult. 
And um, I was under that teaching for about a year and a half until the pastor died and the church split. And uh, when that happened, I questioned Christianity, whether or not it was true. And by God's grace, it led me to basically reading the Bible and figuring out what the Bible actually says and comparing that to what I was taught. And that started my journey into truth. (laughs) And uh, from there, a few years later, the Lord would actually save me by, as I believe through the preaching of the gospel, um, I come to grips with my own sin and my need of a savior. And from there, I just had a hunger and a thirst for just sharing what the truth is and uh, refuting a lot of the lies based on what I was taught. You know, that's kind of how Prescribed Truth had its start. And so uh, Prescribed Truth, I started in 2017. Um, The Lord saved me in 2013. And um, I started on YouTube and just dealing with doctrinal errors from things I was taught in the past. And it's kind of grown from there. And uh, I was able to start a podcast uh, last year and um, just been dealing with different topics. And here lately, been focusing a lot, a lot on the critical theory and social justice issues that we're facing. Yeah, that's great. Jamal, could you tell us exactly what was this cult that you came out of and what was wrong with uh, what they taught? And were there any particular passages of scripture that caused you to start questioning this cult? Well, unfortunately, I didn't start questioning the cult really until towards the end. But this was a uh, reason why I call it a cult is because the pastor basically he used manipulation and scare tactics in order to control this congregation. A lot of us who was in the church, we didn't know much about the Bible. We were young and we didn't read the Bible for ourselves. And so he basically used that to his advantage and we kind of followed him at his word. Uh, he called himself an apostle. He claimed that he had powers given to him from God and he hears from God. Sometimes he would claim he would have dreams and he'd know what we were doing, but really somebody was basically telling him. <laughs> <laughs> but he would claim those things and we would fall for it. And, you know, and so it was based on manipulation and all those things. And man, I, I used, back then I used to love the book of Acts because basically we just turned around the gifts, sign gifts, you know, that's what our main focus was. And so it wasn't until after he had passed away where I get to read the Bible and um, a scripture stuck out to me in Proverbs to talk about basically putting our trust in man and how we should not put our trust in man, but putting our trust in the Lord. And that stuck out to me because we trusted him. You know, we put all of our trust in him and what he said and, and all those things. That's kind of what started the tearing down of the walls. He used to twist a lot of scripture, the scripture where Jesus sat with his disciples and um, his mother Mary and his brother well, called out for him. And Jesus said, who are my mother, my brother, but them that do the will of the Lord. But he would twist that because a lot of our families didn't agree with us being in that church. But he claimed it. Well, who are they? Because they're not following the Lord. They're not in the Lord. So who are they? Like this church, this body, we are true family. And so he would twist scriptures like that. Later on, it started getting real down with drugs and alcohol and all kind of stuff. Um, It was wild. Um, I I do discuss it more on my channel. If anybody's interested on my uh, Prescribed Truth YouTube channel, there is a... uh, a three-part series called Why Prescribed Truth. And I go kind of more in detail as far as what took place I'm in the code if anybody's interested in listening to the full story. That's pretty uh, cool how God worked there, Jamal. So you said that um, your pastor called himself an apostle. I think we both agree that there is no office of apostle right now. So who would call himself an apostle? Is this some form of like a Pentecostal group? Yeah, Pentecostal and apostolic groups, uh, they seem to believe that the title of an apostle is basically set on those who started churches. Well, at least that's what my pastor would say. He said because he founded this church like Paul founded churches, right? (laughs) 
and established churches because he's the founder of this church. This is like an apostolic anointing. And they, he, they would say stuff like the uh, apostles operate in all five of the uh, apostolic gifts or the, the gifts. Basically, from Ephesians 4, it talks about how God gave some pastors, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and apostles for building up the church. Well, they say an apostle operates in all five. They can be a prophet. You know, they can be the evangelist, the pastor, the teacher, and so on and so forth. They believe they was prophesying and, and God spoke through them. My pastor, he used to actually say that we were the closest thing to the voice of God that we would hear. Wow. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so when your pastor is someone who claims to be an apostle, really, you know, how do you question him? Because, yeah, if he claims to speak for God, he's, you know, he's delivering the modern day word of God to you, basically by a form of direct revelation, like how can his views be challenged? That that does seem like the, the one of the marks of a cult. And, you know, it does seem like that would keep the members under bondage because they don't have any means by which to try the spirits and to test what the pastor is teaching if it's true right we didn't and we didn't challenge and for those of us that kind of ch- that challenged him at all he would rebuke us like publicly and like harshly he spent his time emasculating the men especially in front of their wives the children and then you know that made him like the alpha male you know um, at the time i was young I, I wasn't married at the time of course you know but i see how he treated other married men you know, in front of their wives and belittle them when they challenge them in, in any kind of way. And we were like a, a gang slash, you know, a gang in this cult. It's like, so we stood up for him. So if anybody opposed him, we would stand up for, for him. And um, if people from the outside talk bad about him, we would step up for him, you know? <laughs> I mean, it, it, was, it was bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, <laughs> so when it comes to like that kind of cultic thinking, I think it's pretty common because you have so much trust invested in your teacher, your guardian, your protector, that you have such a loyalty to them. And so then that's kind of the tragedy of it, that you'll go to the mat to defend this you know, leader to the death. But then for a lot of people, unfortunately, when once they realize that what they're being taught is not the truth, then they can just become the religiously abused. And, you know, as you, I think you said before, it's like some people they, who come out of these things, they just become the religiously abused. They just become atheists. But thank God for his grace that he could take you out of the imitation and lead you into the truth without abandoning God and his word in the process. Hey Amen. It was, I'll tell you this one thing he's, he, he said in I remember when he when he died. He died in a van accident um, here. Um, he was on the way out of town to a church event. And he was going to be preaching at. And while he him and a few and a, uh, about twenty, uh, you know, about a total of nineteen people, including him, um, headed out of town. The tire flew and the van flew. Four people passed away, including him. And I remember he used to prophesy and say that like he had died and God brought him back to life and that he's always prophesied like, you know, this he'll prophesy something and he'll say, Well, if it don't happen, I won't preach no more as if like as in God's gonna take him away, right? <laughs> but then he would say stuff like God is not gonna kill him. Like God told him, like, hey, I'm it's not your time, you're not going yet until A, B, and C happens. And so when he passed away, it was such a like, like wait a minute, like this ain't supposed to happen, you know? And um, I remember going on the road, hitting the road. After I found out about it, we hit the road to go to the hospitals where some of the people were who were injured. 
And one of the guys I was riding with, he was in a car with me. He was like, Jamal, he's like, what are we going to do? Like, he's not supposed to die. Like, but he's dead. Like, what does this mean? He's like freaking out, you know? And by this time, I was already kind of like, kind of snapping out of it all. But it was like, man, like, it just wasn't true, you know? And I, and I think as uh, by God's grace, what hit me as far as realizing that I shouldn't give up on Christianity as a faith was because the man taught from the Bible, but we didn't know the Bible ourselves. It just came to be honest with myself. I didn't know the Bible like that. I didn't read it like that. I, like I said, I stayed in the book of Acts. I didn't read Proverbs. I didn't read the Psalms. I didn't read what the Bible says about false teachers, or false prophets, and not to fear them when it doesn't come to pass, like any of those things. And so as I began to read the Bible, it was like, yo, if I would have read the scriptures, maybe I wouldn't have believed in them so much. But I hung on what he taught, and I was, you know, didn't didn't read for myself. And that's the case of a lot of people who find themselves in these cults. They don't know the scriptures for themselves. Yeah, amen. It's like, well, what what do you need more than the book of Acts? I mean, you have the the you have the lessons of Jesus applied. You have the the example of the early church. You have some of the sermons that were being preached. So why do you need anything else? But so Jamal with with this um, apostolic group, were they oneness by any chance? Like, did they teach a oneness doctrine of God? Yeah, he did. He, he didn't label himself as a oneness, but um, I remember him talking about um, the nature of God one time, and he spoke of Jesus basically being in multiple forms, existing as the Father in the past, and uh, came as a Son in the present, and then now exists as the Holy Spirit. Wow, so, so basically he taught a form of uh, modalism. So then how did he deal with the passages where Jesus would pray to the Father? Was Jesus praying to himself, or how did he explain that? He would say that Jesus was basically, every time he prayed to the Father, he was basically just giving an example of how prayer should be, but really praying to him, basically just being an example, not really praying to anyone, just basically showing an example of how important prayer is. And I remember one time he covered, I remember taking notes on it. I still have that. I still have those notes to this day. He told us that in the beginning, in Genesis, where you have God created man and woman, he said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. He said that the hour there included Satan. He said, that's why that's why we have good and bad in us, because we were made in the image of God and Satan. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I never heard that one before. I mean, I've heard oneness people explain Genesis one twenty six and the the plural as being either God speaking to the angels and saying, "Hey, let, let's make," kind of like a, "Hey guys, let's check out what I'm going to make," <laughs> or that you know that the plural there is the royal we. So God refers to Himself with the royal we. So those right. are two explanations I heard, but not that the reason we do good and bad is that we're created in the image of God and Satan. That's a new one yeah. for me. <laughs> yeah. That was, I mean, I remember taking notes on it. And I remember after, uh, before the Lord saved me, actually, I remember reading through Genesis and looking at that and I realized, well, that's not true. And I, you know, looking at it again, I was like, that can't be, you know, and so I remember, I remember making a note by it and saying, this is not talking about Satan, <laughs> you know, you know, but yeah, I, as, as if updating my notes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I still I still didn't understand the Trinity at the time. I was still um, a modalist at the time, but I knew that that explanation didn't fit. Yeah, 
It's interesting because it's like, yeah, obviously Satan's not mentioned there by name. You you have to read that in. And then plus everywhere else that said that we're created in the image of God, it never mentions Satan. It's just the image of God. <laughs> but right. It's interesting. So then some passages, for example, because I've talked with several oneness people, especially in online venues. And sometimes I've had some pretty interesting discussions with them. So one passage, for example, if especially given what you were taught, like kind of a dynamic monarchianism or like, uh, um, yeah, like a strict original Sabellian modalism <laughs> that mm -hmm. God was just in three different forms, you know, past, present, future, and that Jesus was actually just setting an example when he prayed. He wasn't actually praying to anyone, but it's interesting if you look at John 8, 17 through 18, where Jesus appeals to the law. Now, if Jesus, of course, is God and he gave the law and he's born of a woman born under the law, according to Galatians 4, 4 and 5, Jesus said in John 18, verses 17 through 18, it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. And so Jesus is saying that his testimony is confirmed as true because, according to the law, there are two witnesses, and that the Father and he both bear witness to the truth. And so if, right. <laughs> if there, God is only the one person and Jesus is the manifestation of the Father, then how can the Father and Son be separate witnesses according to the law. Oh man, you just haven't been, you just haven't been baptized with the gift of the Holy Spirit <laughs> yeah. speaking in tongues. Yeah, so yeah. The, <laughs> because I haven't had the gift of tongues, I prove I haven't have the Holy Spirit and therefore any reading of the Bible, any interpretation of it is invalid. And of course, I haven't been baptized in the name of Jesus only, but <laughs> yeah. It's pretty interesting, you know, of course, even John 17, uh, verse 3, or John 17, 5, where, let me find it here, um, Jesus is praying to the Father, not to himself, but he says, and now, O Father, glorify me with, with your own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And so Jesus is clearly saying that he and the Father both pre-existed um, his conception before the world was and that he had this glory with the Father. And so that's pretty interesting. It points out that Father and Son both exist together and that they both existed prior to the Incarnation, which, of course, would parallel what John 1, 1 shows, that the Amen. that um, the Logos was proston theon, you know, face-to-face -face with the Father. Amen. I mean, it's, it's so clear when you read it, right? <laughs> yeah. If you, if you can't get any clearer than that. It's, it's plainly there. Yeah. Right? Some, somehow they found a way to tap dance around it. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I know with, like, the converse, I don't know what conversations you've had maybe with your or your oneness friends or other oneness people, like, on the Internet, but I, I don't know if we're, when you were in the apostolic oneness cult, did, was there any mentions of Dr. David Bernard? No, 
Oh, okay. I, I didn't know about any theological figures until after I was brought by the gospel. Uh, it was interesting because, you know, back when I was coming up in, that, in those kind of teachings, he talked, it was like uh, he talked down about those who studied. Hmm. You know, like anybody who had a theological degree and all those things, like that was like ridicule because they didn't, they didn't truly have the spirit because they had to go to school. You know, because it's the spirit who teaches us all things and they went to school. So I didn't know about anybody in that in those in those arenas. So this this was definitely a an apostolic cult. It wasn't even mainstream oneness Pentecostalism like the UPC. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So at least the oneness people that I encountered seem to be familiar with Dr. David Bernard, who seems to be the scholar who wrote a book called The Oneness of God, and he basically formulated the oneness teaching, kind of the official modern oneness teaching of the uh, United Pentecostal Church International, the UPCI. And interestingly, oneness historically has been Sabellian modalism. And of course, oneness now is still modalism, but mainstream oneness teaching seems to have adopted kind of uh, Nestorian leanings. I don't know if you've heard of Nestorianism from uh, church history, the early fifth uh, century teaching, basically that yeah. the son was kind of almost like two persons. And so like the son had a human person and a divine person. So not, not that the son is one person with two natures as Orthodox Christianity teaches the hypostatic union, but mm-hmm. really that, it seems like all false teaching refuses to acknowledge the category distinction between being or nature and person. And right. so it's always like a person and a, or equals a nature. And so with Nestorianism now, historically speaking, Nestorius himself may not have been a Nestorian, but, you know, that's a discussion for another time. But Nestorian teaching, uh, it makes Jesus kind of schizophrenic in that he has a human person and a divine person that kind of cooperate together on the basis of a shared will. And so, you know, the human person can almost communicate with the divine person. And so in order to maintain modalism, the modern oneness teaching is that the father indwells the son. The son is just the human being of Jesus. And then the father, which is God, indwelled the son like when I've had conversations with oneness people online, I'd ask them the question to explain the incarnation. Do they even believe in an incarnation? And usually they say, well, of course I do. So I'd ask them questions about what is an incarnation and is the son, the father and who, to whom, and does he pray to the father? Is the father a separate person? And by the time I'm done asking the questions, they seem to come to grips with the fact that they hadn't thought through what they're really proposing and that they don't really support an incarnation doctrine. It's really possession that God 
possesses yep. a separate human being. And, and right. so then I ask the question, well, then what's the difference between Jesus and us if the Holy Spirit is Jesus, which is the Father, and the Holy Spirit indwells us at salvation, then aren't couldn't we say that we are also the incarnation of God? <laughs> and then the, right, and a lot right. of them don't know what to do with that, but really they don't believe in incarnation, which would be taking on a nature because they believe in possession, which really the Father just indwelt a human being with his own personhood. <laughs> So you totally lose wow, the doctrine man. of the incarnation with oneness theology. It's it's a pretty interesting discussion. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wasn't familiar with the the term, but um, there was a time not not in the cult that I was in, but afterwards, the church I joined after that was still like uh, still like a Pentecostal type church, and um, and they did preach that you know that basically like Jesus was basically possessed by God, you know, in that sense. Hmm. So yeah, I did had that teaching later on. Yeah. Because it's interesting, on one side, they'll say that Jesus is God. On the other side, they'll say that Jesus is just the human being and dwelt by God. And so, yeah, like, depending on the question it asks, it's like one or the other, but it, you know, it can't be both. <laughs> but, yeah. Right. It's pretty interesting. So, Jamal, is the, to kind of start to get into some political topics or basically the kind of the critical theory and the racial topics going on, especially in this crazy year of 2020, just touching up the oneness and apostolic teaching, is there like a representation of different ethnicities there more so than, say, like mainstream Orthodox Christian denominations? Or are they about the same? Well, I guess it depends on where you are. Um, and, and my particular church, you know, we was predominantly black. Um, every now and again, we have a couple, you know, white people come in, but they would go. Our our, our church back then, man, it was like <laughs> people came in. A lot of people was able to see the foolery before we were. You know, it's it's like we were we was hung off the Kool Aid. And so if, when people come, they would go. They would stick around. Um, but we were predominantly black then. And the church I was in, a couple of churches I was in, I thought were predominantly black. But yeah, but I'm, I'm I'm just I'm guessing it just depends on where you are when it comes to stuff like that. Hmm. It's that small. Yeah, so it could be like a a regional distribution or something like that. Yeah. Okay. I think with I think with us, it, um, a lot of us that was going to this church were kind of we lived around in the same area. You know, none of us lived um, outside of 15 minutes from each other. Like so, we were all young. I mean, when I say young, I mean like I was 19 when I joined the church. So. And that was uh, that was the average age. <laughs> yeah, that was average age and, and a little younger. You know, uh, the oldest member of our church at the time, see, the pastor, he was thirty three, and uh, so the oldest member outside of him was like twenty seven, and he was and he was the elder, quote unquote. Oh well, that's, <laughs> but a lot of energy in that church, though. <laughs> oh yeah, a lot of energy, a lot of shouting, a lot of running around, and sweat, and everything else. <laughs> well. I mean, it it sounds kind of like, you know, if it weren't some religious problem, it does sound like kind of fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, I mean, it, it, I talk about a lot of the bad teachings, but we, it was a lot of times I've had fun with them. We had good times. You know, it wasn't all like we was, you know, sitting around just rocking back and forth, looking idle at the wall. You know, <laughs> like, you know, we would, we would go places and stuff. But it's just like when you look at the overall of it, it's just like, man, like we were just we're gone. 
you know, a lot of us didn't have money, but you know, the pastor, he had money because we were basically giving it all. And when you look at the overall of it, it's, it was like, man, like even though we were at times where we could say we had good times, we enjoyed each other's company. It's like when you look at it over underneath all that, it's like sad, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, <laughs> and it's you know, like I said it's more I could more I could say on that, but it's just, it's just a long drawn out story as far as the actual experience of this particular cult, yeah. you know. And I think I, and I honestly believe with this particular pastor, and I think it's something I have to be careful of when when people are um, dealing with cults or maybe in one. Sometimes I believe this pastor actually started his church with genuine intentions. I think, you know, he really believed in the apostolic side. He really believed in what he was doing as far as the prophet goes. I don't think he was trying to deceive in the beginning. Um, But I believe he began to see how much leadership he had and how much influence he had on us. And that got the best of him, you know, over time. You know, so I just I think he just was a downward spiral. And the teachings he was under, like, it's interesting when you when you know false teachings, like I think it started to crash in on him. Because his belief system was that we have to do so much good in order to equal out our bad, you know. And I guess he began to realize that towards the end, it's like, man, I'm bad. I can't do nothing about it. I'm so messed up. And he used to preach about it a lot, how jacked up he is and everything else and just like shouting, you know, because he just wanted God to deliver him of, of his wickedness, sin, you know. But it's, it's we're, looking for, we're looking for this supernatural purging, so to speak, like throwing up or uh, laying hands on somebody in order that for that to happen. When the Bible has always taught us it's the Lord who, who's already taken it on the cross. But it, and it's the Holy Spirit who changes our hearts to hate our sin and to love him and to love righteousness. But in that kind of teaching, you look for somebody to lay hands on you. You look, you look for that, that, that feeling of anointing versus the truth that was actually supposed to happen, you know? I think that caved in on towards the end. Yeah. Yeah. Praise God for his grace and bringing you out of that. But he didn't just bring you out of that. He brought you into, you know, like a conservative um, reformed faith. And that's kind of in low supply in this country. You know, you're not like what sometimes what people would call an even jellyfish or, you know, (laughs) something like that. You know, it's like, you know, like... but well, that was crazy because see, I I bought into I say I, I say bought into it. I subscribe to Reformed theology because as the Lord was bringing me into the into truth, I began to see things in Scripture that I didn't. I had no idea it was quote unquote Reformed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I said, I believed in a works based belief system, right? And I you know, and I believed that um, I could lose my salvation. And I remember seeing one of the first things I saw in Scripture. I think it was around 2012 or 13. Um, I looked at scripture and I recognized, I think I was reading John 6. And Jesus said that all that the Father has given me, I will by no means cast out. And I was like, wait a minute. He will by no means cast out. He said, but his, he said the Father gave them to him. And then he goes on to John 10 and talks about how all that comes to me is because the Father draws them. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm like, wait, wait. I've been taught all this time that basically I made a decision to come to God. And I made a decision to come to him and I can make a decision to leave. But Jesus is saying that there's no way I can go if I'm in him, you know, but it was scary to me. It, it didn't make me feel like I had a license to sin. Like some people try to make it seem to me, it, it brought fear mm-hmm. because I'm like, if this is true and that the father is the one who's choosing, then how do I know if I'm truly saved? Like, am I truly in God? You know, I started to really examine my life and, <laughs> and I, had, I and I'm like, wait a minute. Like, and I, I remember getting excited because I'm like. I'm like, yo, we've been taught it's our works that save us. But Jesus is saying our works can't even do anything for us. Like, this is already chosen. Mm-hmm. Like, this was already done before we even had anything to do with it. Like before I walked that out, the father already knows if I'm in him or not. He's already made a decision. And I didn't know that was where that was uh, 
reform theology, had no idea about total depravity or any of that stuff, or perseverance of the saints. That. But I did see where Jesus says that all the fathers give me, I don't know, I know he's cast out and that I give them eternal life. Like my sheep know my voice and they, and they come to me, you know, and I give them eternal life. And my father, you, you know, like what Jesus says, uh, John 10 says, they're in my hands and no one can snatch them out of my hands. And my father, who is greater than all, no one can snatch them out of his hands. And I'm like, whoa, I can, that means I can't snatch myself out. <laughs> So what is this belief saying that if I if I go in if I if I'm in God and I start doing this and doing that then I'm then I'm no longer in God but Jesus says no one can snatch them out of his hand that means myself and so some people will say oh some people will say that you're trying to make a license to sin or I can just do anything but what it made me think about was like man like this guy loves us so much like why he wouldn't let us go and you think about anybody else in just in a worldly sense, when you recognize somebody loves you that much and willing to do for you and help you when you can't help yourself, like you don't want to continue to do bad. You want to do good for them. You know, you want to you want to be there for them. You want, you know, so I want to do good. You want to make good on what they've done, you know. And so the love of God makes me want to serve him more. It makes me want to turn away from sin, not to turn towards it, you know. And so that was one of the things I began to see. I remember talking to my uh my still oneness friends, I was still sort of oneness, you know, I was, I, I was on the fence at the time. And, uh, but I saw that and I was like, man, like we were taught wrong. I remember going to old friends of mine. I'm like, man, we were taught wrong, man. Like, man, our works don't save us. And I remember seeing that, you know, and um, it was like, what are you talking about, man? I'm like, man, I'm just telling you, man, our works don't save us. Like, you don't, like, you don't, you don't have to cry out and spit on the floor every time you mess up. Like, you just got to go to Christ. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I remember that, like being, something that the Lord just woke, woken up to me. And so when I came to, when I actually come to understand or hear about Reformed theology, I'm like, oh, well, I already agree with that. <laughs> you know, I, I see it in scripture. I actually, I actually saw in Genesis where it talks about, when God says that uh, he would no longer destroy the world because of man, because man is evil from the day of his uh, youth. And so I saw that, I'm like, wait a minute. So God said he won't know, he will no longer destroy the earth with water because of this. Like he basically saying that we've always been bad. Like, you know, we've always been jacked up. I didn't know about total depravity, but that stood out to me. You, you get what I'm saying? Yes. And so that was just, just come scriptures that like stood out to me at the time. And what really broke me was when um, the Lord actually brought me to the understanding of the Trinity. And I'm, I'm not going to be too long on it because it's actually a longer story, but it was a beautiful time because I was wondering this. And I remember a friend of mine was asking me about the Trinity. And I told him, I said, look, I don't know what the Trinity is. I said, I'll ask some questions to the people I know and I'll get back to you. And I remember going to a oneness guy. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know he was one this, but I was like, hey man, I was like, what is it? What is the Trinity? And he began to give me all these scriptures about how the one about the oneness of God, you know, God is one, I and the Father are one, and so on and so forth. Give me all this scripture. And he was saying, the, you know, God is not a monster, he's not a three-headed monster, you know. So basically he was saying there was no Trinity. And I, I mean, I, I, looked, I wrote all the scriptures down he gave me, but I wasn't satisfied because he didn't really help me understand what the Trinity is. Like, what, is, what do people say the Trinity is? Because that's what I want to figure out. And that's kind of how I do how I deal with things now. It's like when I don't know something, I don't want to know the opposings. I want to know what the, the people who ascribe to it say it is. And then and let's see if the Bible agrees with it. And so I remember going back home and then I turned on YouTube and I look up Trinity. And what popped up was James White's Forgotten Trinity. <laughs> mm, yeah. And I remember watching that and watching him break that down. I watched Jeff Durbin's video on the Trinity. And, uh, and I remember following them in the notes and I'm looking to refute them. I'm like, they can't be right. You know, because I've been looking at these scriptures all this time. And I said, they can't be right. But as I follow what they were saying and I, 
I, I don't, man, as I follow what they were saying and just looking at the scriptures and we were talking about the underlying words and everything else, it opened up and my, I mean, the scales were off. I remember, I remember crying mm-hmm. when I come to that understanding. I was crying. I remember uh, calling a friend of mine. I was like, the Trinity, the Trinity is true. Like, God is God is a Trinity. You know what this means? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, the, even the understanding of love, how God, it's impossible for God to be love apart from being multi-personal. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, that, uh, so I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go that long this, but that yeah. was like a turning point in my walking, you know, walking the Lord at that point. Just that understanding. Yeah. I think that's really cool because, you know, I grew up always believing the Trinity, but not really having it explained to the best of ability. And so when I talk with, when I was younger and I talk with other people and, you know, they would challenge the Trinity. I didn't really know how to explain it or defend it. But then, yeah, I watched, I read the the Forgotten Trinity by James White, and I would watch some videos, and he would explain the difference between being and person. And, you know, like, first I'm thinking, like, aren't you just splitting hairs a little bit there? But then it really got me to understand that, like, everything follows everything else, and, like, doctrinally, like, just you know, starting from the attributes of God, like you said, God is love and understanding, you know, personal, natural attributes and, you know, the eternal nature of God. And then going from the Trinity to who Jesus is, the incarnation. And it's like, oh, a category distinction between being and person, the who and the what is necessary to understand who Jesus is, the incarnation, where God is one nature, three persons. There's one God, but three persons. And then from there, the one person of the Son takes on the human nature. So he's one person with two natures. And then instead of thinking that that's like weird and confusing, it's actually such a beautiful thing because you can't have a true incarnation. You can't even define the incarnation without that, without the Trinity and the distinction in personhood between the Son and the Father. And then like to understand, well, why the incarnation? Because he has to be our substitute. So you go from the right, doctrine yes. of God, the attributes of God, to the the nature of God, Trinity, to who is Jesus, the incarnation, to substitutionary atonement, and it's all linked together. And you know, if you get rid of the Trinity, you don't have any of that. Amen. Amen. It's yeah, it's pretty it's pretty cool. Ephesians chapter four verse twenty five. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another for his name's sake. What's up, everybody? I'm Jamal Bandy, the host of the Prescribed Truth Podcast, where I seek to distribute the truth that the doctor prescribes to the church and the world today. The Lord graciously brought me out of a cult in 2010, saved me in 2013, and in 2017, Prescribed Truth began. My mission has been to spread the truth of God's word while refuting dangerous lies affecting most churches and the culture at large from a biblical and reformed perspective. Join me on Sundays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for the live recording of the podcast on YouTube and download the audio version wherever podcasts can be found, including the Christian podcast community. If you would like to know more about Prescribed Truth, please visit my website at prescribedtruth.com. 
And remember, this world is full of errors, but the only thing that the doctor prescribes is truth. Blessings. So, Jamal, just you have some time. We'll switch uh, topics over to uh, some political, cultural issues. Okay. Let's see. So you've heard of critical theory and what's now called systemic racism. Can you explain that like from your perspective, your understanding, and maybe even if you have any experiences related to this? Okay. So from my understanding, critical theory uh, is basically in and of itself is just dealing with the idea that there's a, um, there's two classes, you know, it's simply put the haves and the have nots. Um, you know, those who, you know, have more and then those who are poor, you know, and they're put as basically like there's an oppressor class. So it had nothing to do with race in the beginning. Um, I actually had a chance to read uh, Karl Marx's uh, Communist Manifesto, and I haven't read all of it yet. But as I'm going to read it, basically the issue there when it comes to critical theory is this idea that everybody should be making, uh, should be earning on the same level. Not, not, not about opportunity, but outcome. So that's where I see the critical theory. It's just showing that there's this gap, this disparity between classes. But now we have it getting into something called critical race theory, whereas now it's not about classes of people because when it was classes of people, it was whites against whites, you know, so to speak. Um, it didn't matter what color you were. It just as far as what your status was, uh, where now it's dealing with race, you know, as far as ethnicities. So one ethnicity seems to get a better a deal than the than one than another ethnicity. So in a lot of the cases we talk about now is blacks versus white, and so um, it's my, so that's my understanding of critical theory as just in the simplest form. Now this works out in the systems in like what's put in place and who gets taxed, who doesn't get taxed, and who owns businesses, who doesn't own businesses, and all those things. Just wealth and passed down generational wealth versus those who have the quote unquote scrape and, and claw through life. And don't really have an inheritance to leave behind for their for the next generations and so on and so forth. And so you have all of that just dealing with class. But here on the race end of it is basically, you know, what people group you belong to, you know, who basically um, had the, the better lot in life based on, you know, who their ancestors were. And so, um, yeah, and that, that goes into I think a lot of that came from dealing with uh, America during the transatlantic slave trade. You know, a lot of people try to assume that America was like racist in the beginning. Like, you know, like it, it was always this way in the beginning as far as the classes. But it's not so, not necessarily, not not so. Yeah, it's interesting because it used to be not too long ago that different political factions would even at least try to appeal to what are called the founding fathers and say like, well, they would agree more with our view rather than your view. But now you have statues being pulled down and the whole idea is history doesn't matter anymore at least we're not supposed to regard history as something that shaped anything positive it's more like okay what we learn from history is just bad and then we can get rid of it all and basically start history anew from scratch basically with the the critical theory from 
what little I've read about it, of course, you did mention it. It comes from Marxism and that it's basically like you can't interpret or even theorize without looking at history as far as here's the oppressor class and here's the oppressed class. And that's the lens through which you shape your policy in the present. And then you mentioned that now we add the word race to it. So now you have critical race theory going on now where it's really an extension of Marxism, unfortunately, where people are tying the fight for, or at least the perceived fight for racial or ethnic equality, but it's really to implement a Marxist policy, basically centralized policy to control things like taxes or punishing inheritance or, you know, even forcing people not to be able to have certain kinds of professions to level playing fields. So why is this something that the church should be involved in? I know a lot of churches, you know, even evangelical or reformed churches are implementing this in some of their sermons, like they feel like they have the duty to preach about critical race theory. So do you think this is something that the church should be involved in, should be promoting, or how should the church be handling these issues? Should they just ignore them, or should the church implement them in their sermons? Well, it definitely shouldn't be ignored. For years, this has been like a topic that's been coming up. But no, it definitely shouldn't be ignored, but it shouldn't be implemented, and it shouldn't be promoted, because it comes off of a false premise. You know, the premise is faulty. The issue that they, that people who stand on the side of social justice is claiming that there is an injustice that is socialized. <laughs> they, they, they redefine the term what social justice is actually about. You know, and social justice in itself is about critical theory. Everybody having the, uh, equal outcomes, you know, this communist idea. But they changed it to mean social, like we, like we socialize. Therefore, our, our social engagement is jacked up because of injustice, Right. And so this, this is what we should be focused on. But that's a bad premise because what they consider to be injustices aren't all injustice. A lot, a lot of the things, I remember um, Eric Mason, his book, Woke Church, mentioned how an injustice, I'm just giving one example, one injustice he named in his book was fatherless homes. Well, that is an injustice in a spiritual sense by fathers not taking part in their children's lives, right? But that's not a, an, injustice, an injustice based on race, like this is this is the white man's fault, or this is something the church as a, as a whole can fix. Like we can't fix fatherlessness. We can we can preach the gospel to a father who is abandoning his family, right? Mm-hmm. And call on him to repent and, and have him go and be a father to his children, right? But that's the gospel at work. Mm-hmm. But we can't we can't put a policy in place. There's no law the state can put in place to make a father be a father. And if you tell a father he's going to go to jail, have a fine for not being there, well, they already have that called child support. And so it's like you're not there. And so if you have to go to jail, it's not going to change them not being in a child's life. You know, I can imagine a world where fathers are made or forced basically by the law to stay at home. Right. And they stay at home and the child is the child is there with them. But there's no interaction. There's no love. There's no care because the father don't want to be there. So a law can't change the heart of a man. And so but he called that an injustice. And I was like, that's, that's not an injustice in the sense where you talk about we should protest. How are you going to protest fatherlessness? 
another injustice bringing it out of the home, another injustice that he named was the fact that black people don't get loans or black people can't get loans. And so that's something to protest about. But there are so many factors as to how you even get a loan. You know, and businesses have the right to refuse to give a loan based on the risk that they're having to take. I know my credit is not the best. I'd be surprised if a company wants to take a risk and give me a thousand dollars. You know, if I get if I get four hundred dollars, I'll be good <laughs> because I, my credit is not good. They don't want to look. They look at my credit history, look at my payment history, they look at all of that, and that determines a lot of that. And I, I remember having a conversation with a brother who thought that this was a race issue. And I said, I said, you go to a loan office. How can you really, like, if you say that's an injustice, how can you prove that you was denied a loan because of your skin? Like, unless they told you flat out, we don't serve black people here. But what is the reason that they say you couldn't get the loan? What was it? And can you prove that it was, it was race and related? Because it gets me, and I'm, and I'm sorry going on a tangent here, Daniel, but it gets me because back in the times where there was actually like social injustice in that way, and there was laws put in place like Jim Crow and everything else, it was blatant. Mm-hmm. Black people did not have to guess whether or not somebody was racist towards them. White people didn't have to question to themselves and say, am I truly being racist to them? Because it was blatant. It was clear. I don't like your skin color. I don't like you because of your skin color. I don't serve you here. We don't want you here. Mm-hmm. But now you don't have anybody saying we don't want you here. We don't have anybody saying we don't serve you, but we're going to assume that because I don't get what I want. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's, no, that's a tangent. No, it's, it's definitely, <laughs> it's, it's definitely food for thought. And it brings up the kind of like the, some of the questions I was thinking about, because it seems like as a whole, the country has made great strides in really becoming colorblind. Um, you know, remember Martin Luther King Jr.'s, you know, I had a dream speech that people would talk about a lot for decades that he said, that he had a dream that people would be judged not by the color of their skin, but by their character. And and so, you know, it's not Birmingham, Alabama, 1968 anymore, but some people seem to think that it is. And we've made incredible strides at becoming colorblind, but now with critical race theory um, and Black Lives Matter, things like that, it's almost like it's time to segregate again because we can't be allowed to be colorblind anymore. Like being, oh, I mean, my wife recently took a module, like she has to get some credits for her midwifery profession. She has to take um, these modules to keep uh, continuing education. And she took one that had to do with basically repenting of whiteness. And the whole thing was critical theory and kind of a postmodern interpretation of things. So it was drilled over and over again. I watched as she was taking this thing and the outline, the slides that say race or ethnicity was, had nothing to do with skin color. Well then, you know, why is there all this outrage going on over things, you know, like the death of George Floyd have had nothing to do with that. seems like on one side, it has something to do with it. And then the other side, they want to say that, well, it really has nothing to do with skin color. It has like whiteness is defined by certain actions, certain kind of type of culture. And basically all the midwives there were giving their testimonies. I mean, it seemed like they were giving salvation testimonies in a way about how they came to grips 
with the idea that they were wicked racists and they didn't even realize it and they were repenting of their whiteness and it really you know it wasn't that they were actual racist in the historical sense they're they're repenting of you know like the protestant work ethic and stuff like that like that's all whiteness and that's racism and you know they had to completely embrace a postmodern understanding of everything to be correct and unfortunately it seems like this whole critical race theory is another form of salvation to compete with the gospel because (laughs) the way it's proposed it's like you have to have a salvation experience in it but unlike the gospel the gospel unites people no matter who you are no matter what your skin color is or your culture that we share the table of the lord together and it's it's not based on who you are you don't celebrate it differently based on who you are so the gospel brings people together unites but then the gospel of critical race theory intends to divide people and you have to enforce certain cultural understandings of things and that you have to recognize what is so-called whiteness and what is so-called blackness again and we're we're losing the color blindness that i thought we gained and i thought that was an improvement but unfortunately you know that's not the goal anymore (laughs) well i I would say that i don't think the the goal should be to be colorblind in a sense yeah but that because the thing is we can enjoy we can enjoy our you know as far as who we are culturally sure (laughs) you know the things that those things that aren't sinful because see what makes it different what makes it difficult in a lot of areas like that because cultural is a lot of our cultures mm-hmm. are in um, are surrounded with sin, mm-hmm. you know, like as far as like what they do and why they do certain things, you know, they're sin related, mm-hmm. you know, so those are things we don't want to embrace, of course, right? Mm-hmm. But I mean, the type of food you eat, you know, what you may like, but I may like, I like soul food, mm-hmm. and, you know, and you like soul food, I'm pretty sure you <laughs> like some soul food. <laughs> yeah. I like Mexican, yeah, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I don't think I had no true authentic Mexican yet, but I would love it. And, you know, and everything else, like, we can enjoy what comes from each other's cultures, mm-hmm. you know, and, but what's, what's making it an issue when it comes to color is because they're making it as if color makes you, um, makes you a monolith. Like, if you, if you share this color, then all of you got to agree mm-hmm. and think a certain way, you know, no matter your backgrounds, how you grew up and everything else. Like, I remember I made a video on YouTube about uh, what is the standard of blackness? Like, what does that mean? Like, even whiteness. Like, I remember uh, Kimene Uwan, she said that uh, whiteness is wicked. You know, whiteness. She said whiteness is rooted in thievery and, and pillage and, and everything else. I'm like, that's, those are sins. That's not a, a color. a sign to that. God said, thou shalt not steal. Thou, God said, thou shalt not commit murder. He wasn't just talking to white people. He's talking to everybody. You know, so like, what is the definition of blackness? What is blackness? And then somebody would say, well, the kind of music you like. Well, I don't like a lot of music that a lot of black people like, you know, and I like music that a lot of black people won't like, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So it's like, like, what is the standard and who holds oh, it? Yes. You know, who, who holds the standard of what is blackness and what is whiteness and what does it mean? Yes. You know, and no one has the answer for that. You know, it's like, and I'm like, and, who, and if somebody does have a standard of it, then who, what makes them the standard? <laughs> yes. You know, and so it's, it doesn't make sense to me. You know, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't equate, you know, and that's what I've been looking for is, like, okay, make it make sense. And so 
I'm okay with, you know, with saying, hey, our culture is 80s. Okay, let me go, I don't want to go on a tangent, but I remember when I was on the fence about this, Daniel, I was years ago, and my understanding was, like, why, why isn't the hip-hop culture being represented in Reformed churches? Like, we, we, are, we are singing all these contemporary songs and these hymns and stuff like that, but what about the gospel hip-hop? I mean, there's some good Christian hip-hop songs that are, you know, solid in their theology and everything, you know, and make it bounce a little. Like, what's wrong with bouncing a little, you know? <laughs> Like that's that's part of our culture. That's how that is. You know, like that's what we do. Like, what's wrong with incorporating that in worship? Like, why can't we have that happen? You know. Uh, and so, <laughs> and I remember thinking, I'm like, man, that's you know, that's that's a, that's a sign of like a disparity here. Like, why, you know, like what's wrong with that? And I'm and I'm on the fence about this. But the more I thought about it, I was like, man, there are. And my church is multi, like multi ethnic. Like, we, there's different people from different places. And I'm like, what would that look like if all of our, like, if all of our ethnicities had to be represented in one single church service? You know, mm-hmm. man, I'm like, that, one, that'll be a long church service. You know, <laughs> we got, we got, we got to make sure we play an Asian song. Uh, that, that goes crazy. We got to make sure we play a Hispanic song and get an interpreter so we can all can get along with it. We got, you know, I mean, and and all Asians aren't the same. So we have someone, you know, so <laughs> we have someone from China. We have someone from, from Thailand. You know, like, what do we, what, what does that look like? Talk, if we talk about real diversity in that sense, and I, I remember a little thinking about that, and I was like, man, I've been, I grew up in black churches, and I thought about like, so that means that black churches who sing their, their Negro spirituals, you know, now I got to sing some contemporary music too, mm-hmm. you know, they got to bring in some extra stuff too, and those church services are already really long, so now they're gonna be super long, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm, and I'm thinking about it just on a realistic level, like that doesn't work, and so what I came to realize is that. Well, I think um, Bodhi Bakum explained it really well. He's like, God defines how worship should be in his churches. And he defines worship, right? And scripture talks about, you know, singing songs and, you know, uh, spiritual hymns and all those things, singing, singing hymns and songs and, and those things. And so we follow along with scripture and those But, and I'm just talking about for what I dealt with. And the music isn't representing your culture. So you think it should be like, is that the main thing? The music? <laughs> like, is that why we go to church? Is that is that why we worship the Lord because my blackness has been represented, and like that's like it doesn't work. That doesn't fit, you know. And that's when I began to think about like I don't know if this re- this really makes sense. And I started to kind of back up a little bit, you know. And then the more I dove in and realized what the arguments were and what was being said is like wow, it's like it's taking away it's taking us more and more away from the unity that we're supposed to have in Christ. You know, off of small things. Like now it's the issue of who serves as elder. So you have too many white people serving as elder. You need some black people serving as elder. But what about the Asians? What about the Mexicans? What about like and why would you put people in place just because of the color? Mm-hmm. Is that how Paul instructed Timothy to choose elders? Did he say go and pick elders, you know, two elders for for these churches based on, you know, ethnicity and make sure you get one from Samaria and the other one from another place? No. He gave them he gave them character qualities that they that they must have, <laughs> and they were good to go. Yeah, you know. So I don't know that <laughs> it, it, it just was it just was bogus to me. Like this whole that whole idea, and when the church is buying into it and caving in, it's insulting. Like uh, Matt Chandler when he said that he'll take uh, basically an African American seven over an Anglo eight. It's like, so you basically choose the African-American, even though he's less qualified and he's not going to do as good a job as, as the, the Anglo would, but you will pick him just because he's black. That's an insult. Hmm. You know, like, no, like, 
I don't, I don't want to come to your church and you're just going to just settle for whatever because somebody's black and if I got to hear a subpar message, you know, or somebody's not taking as much time to study, whatever the case may be, or not working as hard, or doesn't know as much. Like, no, I want to get the most out of my out of my worship service and the hearing the word and growing, you know. And so now there's a black man who's an eight, as he would say, <laughs> and versus a like, well, go for it, you know. But that, that idea of affirmative action is, is beyond me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And like, you know, you mentioned Vody Bauckham. I have a tremendous love and respect for Vody Bauckham. My wife and I have watched his videos and I'm like, man, it's hard to get much better than this. I mean, he's like, what, he has like adopted like six kids. You know, he has eight kids. He's mm-hmm. faithfully married. He's like a champion in jujitsu and like he's a uh, <laughs> hardcore in doctrine. He moved to Africa, um, Zambia. I think it was. And, you know, he's like a head of the, the, the seminary there. Like, wow, he's he's an impressive guy. You know, it's like, I mean, I what I like about him is the fact that he is African-American and he has such a an incredible pedigree there. And, you know, he's got the qualities, even regardless of his, you know, his ethnicity there. But right. <laughs> so. And there, and there are a lot of cases like that, and that's what mm-hmm. that was, that's what got me. Because how can you say that blacks don't have this when there are blacks who do have it? And you say, well, they, they're an exception. Well, in, in Jim Crow, there was no exception. Mm-hmm. There was no exception in Jim Crow. You know, when areas where Jim Crow was in place, like there was no exception. Everybody got the same. Everybody, you was disliked across the board. It's, it's systemically, as I mean. So like you weren't you weren't finna vote. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But you you know you have people who who do well, they're blacks who got, you know, you got millionaires who are blacks, you know, billionaires who are black, you know, mm-hmm. so like successful men and women who are black throws this whole narrative off because if it's true for one, then it has to be true for all. And so this is, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, one of the things that got me, I've said this much, when um, this idea of America, as far as always being this way, I remember having a conversation with a brother dealing with the three-fifths of compromise. Mm-hmm. And so how he basically was like, America always seen us as three-fifths of a person. Hmm. And um, and I remember I had did some research on that prior to that conversation that um, happening. And um, I was excited to get into it. I was like, man, I want to share with my brother this truth. And what I realized concerning the three-fifths compromise, because I was always taught that my dad used to tell me that growing up. You know, like they all they married. They always thought of you as three-fifths of a person. They didn't think you was a whole person. And I believed that growing up about the three-fifths compromise. And so even as a Christian, I was like, well, that was a, that was a mistake of America. You know, like that was that their heart, you know, looking at us that way. But when I actually researched what the three fifths compromise was and what the intentions of the founders were in admitting that, I was like, wow, they actually were looking out for black people, you know. And um, <laughs> it's like the three fifths compromise didn't say we were three fifths of a person. Basically, the South wanted to continue slavery. The North didn't, you know, well, those in the northern colonies because America was only 13 colonies at the time. And so you got these 13 colonies, but the majority of them, which are the North, they don't want slavery. The South do. But America don't want to be the type of country where uh, one side rules everything. Like, they got, we, there has to be checks and balances. Like, that's how they wanted it to be. So they wasn't, they wasn't going to say, no, we don't agree with you, South, so we're going to do our own thing. They wanted to be united, but they wanted to have a compromise. This is what you do with compromises. And so the South had more, had more uh, people far as population go because of slavery and so they said hey we can't allow you to count all your slaves as far as um, population goes because you have more representation in congress and house representatives that's you know we can't have that 
You know, so all your slaves, all the slaves, we're going to count three of every five as a population, you know, as far as the population. You can count three of five. That's it. And that's going to, that's going to help. Man, that's going to uh, determine how many representatives you have in the House. Well, that was that didn't include all black people, Daniel, which, which blew my mind. That wasn't all black people. That were only black slaves. So all there were, and at the time of the of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, there were free, free blacks. Mm-hmm. Like all blacks were slaves. They were free men. And after that was signed, and after that that, that compromise was passed, blacks were still gaining their freedom over the years. And so what this meant was the South was losing power gradually over the course of years, constantly losing power. Where eventually, in uh, I want to say uh, I don't want to get it wrong. Uh, it was 1860, 1860 when, they, when slavery, 65 when the slavery was uh, fully abolished. Mm. But it, it took some decades, but it got there. Mm. But that was that was the that was the intention of the founders that we don't want slavery here. Mm. But we know we can't we can't just bombard the South as far as with our ideas. And some people may say well, that was a coward move. But what would have happened? America would have been divided before it even started. Mm. You know, and so like they, they systematically put it in place. That racism, not racism, but uh, slavery would end, and they had that in mind. They didn't. They knew they wouldn't live to see it, but that's what they put in place. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that 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 can't. That means that the idea that America was founded on racism and founded on like founded on you know black people not being this and that, this and that, and the third or whatever. That's not true. Not across the board. You know, and so it's like we have to be fair about those things. I think was was we missed this whole conversation up with critical theory. And the reality of things is because you have to pick apart in order to have a conversation. We need to pick apart all these individual issues and things that took place and what, ha- what actually happened in history. And, and then as a Christian, we know that sin is not a, a nation can't sin, but it's individuals within a nation that sin. Mm-hmm. So dealing with those individuals and therefore America doesn't have a race problem. There are individuals within America who have a race problem mm-hmm. if they do, you know, and then those people who may be in place you know, maybe racist, and therefore they pass policies, put things in place, as we see today. What we have today, people who are in love with homosexuals, who find that there's nothing wrong with homosexuality, where they find themselves in office, what they do, they try to pass laws, they, they, they get gay marriage, okay, because they are in office to do those things. And people who have who share the same interests as they do, vote them in office. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, these individuals have to deal with. And I think this, this whole argument about critical race theory and social justice and all of that stuff takes away from what the Bible teaches about sinfulness of man and the remedy. Mm-hmm. Amen. And I talked about on my previous episodes about democracy. So you want to check those out. I talked about the will, how people vote and pass laws and stuff like that. Um, so mm-hmm. Jamal, like a la- just a last quick question for you. Have, do you have any experiences with say fellow black brothers or sisters that have been really critical of you because you don't toe the line like of, critical race theory or supporting black lives matter. No, my only experience is that I get blocked, <laughs> <laughs> uh, blocked or unfriended. I haven't had, um, and I've asked for conversations and um, there was one time where um, a brother did reach out to me as far as getting on a panel. And I, I knew that I basically the only one that shared my view. Um, but I, unfortunately at the time I was dealing with a lot of things and I couldn't take part in that panel. But so I probably would have gotten uh, rung out to dry then if I was on there. <laughs> but uh, as far as my only personal experiences, 
dealing with people who disagree with me in that regard. It's basically just, you know, we ain't talking. Mm-hmm. And I, mean, I think that's unfortunate. Yeah. You know, and, and that's and that's because the, the idea, um, that's a, that's an idea they all have. Even Eric Mason said, uh, he was like, you know, if you, only people he's talking to about this is people who basically agree with him, you know, or who may have questions. Like, you like mm-hmm. you don't disagree, but you're on the fence. Like, I'll deal with you because mm-hmm. you have questions. And, but I'm not going to deal with you if you if you don't see these injustices if you don't if you don't agree that that's an issue out here you know that's a lot of their thinking you know and that's but I'm I'm, I'm like as a Christian like we don't handle any other issue like that mm-hmm. like we believe that God is real and so we don't tell atheists well we don't, we're not going to talk to you because we don't believe that God is real so we're not going to discuss anything with you but no we'll still sit there and discuss things with the atheists. You know, and try to and try to compel them and convince them or show them evidence of what the case may be and pray for them and everything else. The same thing with Jehovah's Witnesses. And we don't we don't agree with you, but we're not gonna tell you we, you don't not to talk to us because you don't agree with us. Yes. You know, it's, but it seems like with this issue, this is like the ultimate offense to God because by this offense, we can't have no dealings. Like we can't we can't talk, you know, because we don't agree and they don't have the as they say, they they feel like they they'll they gonna uh <laughs> They find themselves more stressed by having this conversation. You know, they don't want, they don't feel like it's a safe, a safe space, mm-hmm. you know, because it's going to bring trauma to them to discuss these issues. And you don't agree on them and everything else like that's so cowardly to me. Mm-hmm. That's cowardly, you know, because I don't I don't mind if you disagree with me. You know, this the whole issue. The whole point is that we come together and you may not agree with me after we talk. But the point is that we come together and really flesh out what we're, what we're saying, because we're, we're being misre- misrepresented on either side. There's misrepresentations on either side. And the only way we can really see what's really consistent is by having that conversation. And then being honest with ourselves, if I find that I'm inconsistent, that what I'm believing is inconsistent, then something needs to change. You know, I'm viewing something wrong. But they don't, they don't want to take the time to really see if they are being inconsistent, which, you know, of course, they are inconsistent. Hmm. Amen. Jamal, it's like cancel culture, safe spaces. Let's not discuss, debate, um, figure out truth. It's more like my ideas are truth and don't bother me with the details. (laughs) So Jamal, about time to wrap things up here, but uh, I'd like to give you the final word to say what you want or, you know, uh, where, where can people contact you or get more information about you, your ministry, your podcast? Yeah. So, so one, I would like to say thank you so much, Dave, for having me on the show. I really greatly appreciate that the opportunity to be on here and talk with you. Um, to be on another be on another podcast that has truth. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, if anybody wants to contact me, you can do so. You can email me at prescribed.truth at gmail.com. You're welcome to visit the website, prescribedtruth.com, where you can have access to the podcast and the YouTube channel. Um, I would uh, ask that you all would subscribe to the YouTube channel and um you know, in the podcast as well. Let me know what you guys' thoughts are. You know, those of you, those of you who may listen to this and disagree, I am open to criticism. You know, we can we can have a discussion. I'm I'm open to it. And um, and yeah. And so I just thank you for the opportunity, man. And thank you, Jamal. And there you go. That's uh, Jamal Bandy. I hope that you'll check him out and watch his videos. They're dynamite. Check out his podcast, Prescribed Truth. There's a lot of good stuff there, good theology.
Well, I hope you enjoyed uh, my interview with Jamal Bandy on these two very important topics on this Rewind episode for back in September of 2020. And stay tuned for more episodes of Truth Espresso and God Bless. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.